This is Frank Rose. I'm the author of The Sea We Swim In, How Stories Work in a Data-Driven World. And you are listening to The Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to The Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, and thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. I do this podcast to help me and my listeners keep up with the latest ideas that matter most in the quickly changing and somewhat overwhelming world of modern marketing and sales. My day job is running a marketing agency that helps manufacturers and industrial companies grow their revenue. To learn more about the problems we solve and how we do it, visit salesartillery.com. All right, enough yakking. Let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Frank Rose to talk about his new book, The Sea We Swim In, How Stories Work in a Data-Driven World, published by W.W. Norton. Frank Rose is an author, essayist, and keynote speaker. A senior fellow at the Columbia University School of the Arts, he teaches global business executives as faculty director of its strategic storytelling program, presented in partnership with Columbia Business School Executive Education, and serves as awards director of its digital storytelling lab. His previous book, The Art of Immersion, How the Digital Generation is Remaking Hollywood, Madison Avenue, and the Way We Tell Stories, was hailed by the International Journal of Advertising as an essential overview of the fundamental changes affecting media. Before moving to Columbia, Frank spent many years reporting on the impact of technology on media as a contributing writer at Wired and a contributing writer at Fortune before that. His 1989 bestseller, West of Eden, about the ouster of Steve Jobs from Apple, was named one of the 10 best books of the year by Business Week. Among his other books is The Agency, an unauthorized history of the oldest and at one time most successful talent agency in Hollywood. And interesting facts. He is a native of Virginia and graduated from Washington and Lee University, go generals, with a degree in journalism and moved soon after to New York where he got his start covering the punk scene at CBGB for the Village Voice chronicling the emergence of Patti Smith, the Ramones, and Talking Heads, all of whom are now in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Frank, congratulations on the sea we swim in, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. Great to be here. Well, it's an honor to interview you, and you are the second author I've interviewed who is a graduate of Washington and Lee University. Uh-huh. There aren't many. It's a small school. The other is Stephen Denny, co-author of Unfiltered Marketing. And years ago, I went to uh, college right next door at VMI, Virginia Military Institute. So you didn't hold that against me, and I appreciate the opportunity to interview you. I try to keep a broad mind, Doug. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's all we can ask. And I, I just read your bio, and I've interviewed over 275 authors for this podcast. And doggone it, listening to your bio, you are 
undoubtedly the coolest one of all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll keep that in mind. Yeah, and you live in the East Village in Manhattan, very near my daughter, Emma. So if you ever need a babysitter or somebody to come water the plants, she's just a few blocks away. So, And that goes for you listeners in that area, too. Great, great. Thank you. So I want to read just a couple of things from the, the beginning of the book. You have two really interesting quotes at the very beginning. One is by David Foster Wallace from This Is Water. The quote is, there are two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? And the other is from Jerome Butler, uh, The Culture of Education. We live in a sea of stories, and like the fish who, according to the proverb, will be the last to discover water, we have our own difficulties grasping what it is like to swim in stories. So this book was uh, very different from a lot of the ones that I typically have on the, on the Marketing Book Podcast. This book goes way beyond storytelling, and it was a, what I like to call kind of an adventure. And it reminded me of two other books that have been on the show not too long ago, within the last year or two. One of them is by Rory Sutherland called Alchemy, the Dark Art and Curious Science of Creating Magic in Brands, Business, and Life. And the other one was by uh, a fellow New Yorker of yours, Sinan Aral. His book is called The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. And I don't know if you're familiar with those two books, but they really kind of blew my mind, <laughs> just, <laughs> just like this book. So in other words, um, this isn't the you know, books on the basics of storytelling, anything like that. It goes way, way beyond that. And that's why I say it It was a, uh, a refreshing departure from a lot of the, you know, uh, books that I like to feature on the show. So I just want the listener to understand it's quite a book and it's very, it's very different. So I want to read a couple, uh, just a couple of quick things from the very beginning that you've written. And one is page 14, where you write, if we live in a sea of stories, then narrative thinking means being aware of the sea we swim in. It means realizing that stories constitute a a distinct mode of thought, one that plays such a central role in human experience that anyone who wants to sell something, communicate ideas, motivate people, or change their minds should understand how they work. And then on page 21, you write, stories have been weaponized throughout history. Only by understanding how they work, how they can prey on the emotions, can we create better stories to counter them. And finally, on page 16, you write, as a species, humans have an enormous investment in the idea that we are rational creatures, far too cerebral to be persuaded by something so personal and emotional as a story. It's not hard to see why. The laws of reason form a bulwark. Our ability to follow them is what separates our group from all those other groups, the ones that don't think right. Unfortunately, our attachment to this idea is much more emotional than it is rational. So before we get into the book, I was wondering if you could give some background and talk about, as you do in the book, why psychologists and economists over the years have been so dismissive of the uh, study of stories and, and narrative? Well, yes, that's a great question, Douglas, uh, and one that I was uh, increasingly fascinated by as I was working on the book. And 
this uh, the case of Jerome Bruner is really an excellent case in point. I think it was Jerome Bruner who uh, had that first quote um, that you, or actually the second quote that you mentioned, and. He was one of the leading psychologists of the 20th century. He was one of the people who led the revolt against behaviorism uh, in the 50s. He taught at Harvard, then he went to Oxford, then he went to the New School, and finally NYU. And he, at a certain point in the 1980s, he decided that the leading cognitive psychologist, and keep in mind, by the way, that Jerome Bruner was not only led the revolt against behaviorism, he uh, he led the, um, the the what was called the cognitive revolution, which was the beginnings of cognitive science, which we now know as cognitive psychology and neuroscience. So this is a very very influential person, and in the mid eighties, he decided that people really ought to be studying stories. Uh, by people, I mean scientists. And by scientists, I mean psychologists and the, you know, at that point, I think very budding uh, uh, discipline of neuroscience. And the thing was that scientists considered stories to be sort of, you know, trivial. Uh, they considered them to be uh, frivolous. It was entertainment. It was, you know, it was going to the movies. It was, uh, you know, maybe it was reading a novel if you wanted to get really cerebral about it. But that was really all. It wasn't worth studying. And what has happened since is been a complete revolution because cognitive psychologists and in particular neuroscientists have been studying stories uh, starting I think seriously in the in the early 90s uh, and then uh, continuing very much uh, to this day and what they've found is that stories are central to who we are, to our identity, to our understanding of the world, to our understanding of our place in the world. And if we don't understand stories, we don't understand very much about people or how they work. Mm -hmm. So let's go back. Uh, there was a, a very interesting uh, reference point you have here, and you, you write, I wonder if you could explain where we are here. You write, we are all storytellers in the digital world, as we were in the pre-industrial age, before mechanical reproduction relegated most of us to the role of passive consumers. Yes. So that's actually kind of a, um, a, a reference, I suppose, to my previous book, The Art of Immersion, which was really about the idea that uh, every time there is a new major new communications medium that comes along, it takes people 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years to figure out what to do with it. And that's where we are right now with digital technology, uh, especially as it relates to uh, stories and communication in general. So the thing about how we consume media and, you know, in fact, if we consume media in the way that lots of people think we do, I mean, it's just wrong. Uh, and that's one of the ideas, that's one of the, the things that neuroscience has, uh, has shown quite dramatically in the last 15 years or so. 
We don't consume media. We're not passive consumers. We are active consumers, uh, if we are consumers at all. We co-create stories and, and everything that, w that comes into our brains. We co-create it in partnership uh, with the person that we're speaking with or listening to, uh, the story that we're reading, the movie that we're watching, a lot of it takes place in our heads. It's not just taking place in the, uh, the, the, the heads of the creators or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and that's a really critical realization because, uh, you know, there, there's this, there's this idea. I, I love this. There was a paper that came out from the Advertising Research Foundation uh, a while back uh, that talked about the input-output engineering model of advertising as being fundamentally wrong. You know, the idea that you can just uh, input some some thoughts, uh, a sales pitch or whatever, uh, and it would come out as, um, a, you know, purchase intent. Uh, you know, it's, it's just frankly ludicrously wrong. And the same goes with any other kind of persuasion or storytelling or anything, any form of communication we are active participants in, uh, even if we're just watching or listening. Yes, that's right. And I can remember you know, many years ago, I worked in uh, New York City in advertising, and it was back in the good old days. <laughs> we had a, <laughs> in the 80s, uh, starting in the 80s, but we had a much more of a captive audience. And doggone it, it's as if we could shout at people through <laughs> network television. Right. And if we shouted enough, it still needed to be a, a good message. But it's almost like there was a, a correlation between media spend and the client's share of market. <laughs> right. In uh, your Columbia program, as well as in this book, you've identified nine key elements of story. And we don't need to go into all of those, but I was wondering if you could give the listener a, a bird's-eye view of that, uh, of that framework. Sure, yes. That's a, a framework that I came up with originally for the uh, Strategic Storytelling Program at Columbia. And I have to say that the book actually sort of originated uh, as an idea. The book originated as a toolkit that I developed for uh, people who were taking the program, something that they could take home with them. And then I decided that there was more to it, more that I wanted to say that I could fit into a, uh, you know, 25 or 30 pages. Uh, so that's where the book came from. Um, but uh, this idea of the nine key elements of story, so they're, they're, the first three are the ones that are, you know, the most basic, the most fundamental. And that's the author, the audience, and the journey. Uh, as an author, your job is to take the audience on a journey. You want them to start in one place and end someplace else, um, whether, you know, emotionally speaking, uh, narratively speaking, and... Uh, the, that's the that's the whole point of a story. There also has to be some conflict in there. That that's an inherent part of the journey, because without conflict, there are no stakes involved. It doesn't you know whatever happens, it doesn't matter. As a journalist, it actually took me a while to realize that myself. Uh, so. Um, I I feel like I'm you know providing a bit of a shortcut here. The other six elements are are sort of I consider them uh, maybe kind of supporting, and some of them are 
essentially unchanged from the uh, you know from the pre-digital era and some of them are, are changed quite a bit uh, you know character for example I mean character is key it always has been we uh, care a lot more we care about people and uh, and we care a lot more about uh, the people in your story in my story whatever if uh, we understand them if we have some way of identifying with them uh, and uh, and so that is something that doesn't change at all uh, whereas the idea of world which is another of the uh, key elements I think the idea of world is uh, has fundamentally changed it used to be that stories had a setting you know if you went to a movie if you read a book whatever uh, it was a setting you know where things took place and and um, uh, but what's happened now uh, largely under the influence of digital but not exclusively is that we are imaginatively projecting ourselves into a story and in order to do that we need to have a clear sense of the world in which the story takes place and and what our place might be in that world this is relates to one of the key I think uh, understandings about stories that has come as a result of the neuroscience and cognitive psychology work of the last 15-20 years, which is uh, the, the sort of accepted, I think, uh, largely accepted in any case, uh, understanding is that stories are processed in the brain by us imaginatively projecting ourselves into them. We um, identify with one of the main characters. We sort of imagine ourselves in that place, in that situation. And if you think about it, of course, that's how, you know, that's how we understand stories. Why else would we go to horror movies, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, uh, because, uh, you know, we know that the guy is not coming at us with a chainsaw. We're sitting in a movie theater. Um, but we still... Well, you never know, Frank. Well, I know. That's <laughs> true. The realism uh, out there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. And also, uh, when you talk about the, the world... You know, mm -hmm. as it relates to setting, I can't. Maybe you mentioned this in the book, or maybe it just was, maybe it was just me projecting on <laughs> to this. But it, it reminded me of going to see a play mm -hmm. where you see a real simple, you know, couple pieces of furniture and, and and not much there. Right. And that was sort of a when you when you say you know the maybe the the older notion of a setting that's what brought to mind. And then you start talking about video games and all you know VR and all these kinds of things. That's when I there has seems like there has been a lot of change that's happened uh, because of the digital world as it relates to setting and that probably why you called it world instead of setting yeah exactly exactly and you know the 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 thing that's happened largely as a result of digital but there are uh, there are pre-digital examples um, of very immersive stories that that people project themselves into in sort of a, a you know a, a almost an extreme way sometimes and the, the three most obvious examples I think are Star Wars uh, Sherlock Holmes and Lord of the Rings I mean these are uh, you know uh, not just a story whole series of stories that uh, people have become such 
intense fans of that you know they form fan clubs they they you know they do cosplay which is to say they you know dress up in costume they do all kinds of stuff like this um where they you know literally try to project themselves into the story and uh and and what has happened now is that Digital has made it obvious that that's the way we like to experience stories. And it's made it possible for us to, you know, imagine ourselves, to consciously imagine ourselves in all kinds of stories. And it has encouraged, uh, you know, writers, uh, screenwriters, um, film directors, uh, television showrunners, it has encouraged all of them to create more and more open-ended types of stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, open-ended and also, uh, you know, in many cases, increasingly obscure. Because, you know, it used to be uh, in the 80s and, and before that television was the lowest common denominator medium, right? You had to dumb it down so that anybody could understand, you know, what was going on in your cop show or whatever. Um, and now it has become uh, exactly the opposite of that. And, uh, and this is the reason, because people... Uh, understand that they are projecting themselves into your story and they uh, they go online to share information about it. Mm-hmm. To share information about the story, it's like, you know, we no longer gather at the water cooler because we have a virtual water cooler that includes, uh, you know, in some cases, hundreds of millions of people. And in many cases, you know, tens of millions. So, you know, this has encouraged a kind of storytelling, especially in entertainment, in, in movies and television, that, uh, you know, never happened before. And, of course, also you have something like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which, as I quote um, a New Yorker writer, uh, you know, it seems intended to prove uh, that a story can literally go on forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the MCU. And so this is just the way we experience stories now. It's the way stories are. And it's I find it pretty exciting. Yes. And then Beyond World, there's a few other supporting ones. Uh, we'll go into some of these. Detail and voice and then platform and immersion. And I just have to say, is it related to the world you're describing and the cosplay? I don't know if you ever saw it, but years ago, on Saturday Night Live, the guest host was William Shatner, who had been the star of the television series Star Trek in the 1960s. Right. And they recreated a convention. And the fans were there wearing their Star Trek outfit. And they started asking William Shatner questions, real specific questions about specific episodes. And he started to freak out a little bit because he was thinking, man, these people think this is real. <laughs> and that's when he said... It was a real big uh, step for his, you know, post Star Trek career. But it was very funny because he said, "Come on, people, this was just a TV show. <laughs> this didn't really happen." And then he finally went on to say, "What's the deal with you people? You need to get a life. You need to move out of your parents' basements and get a job." And then he points at one of the fellows and says, "You have you ever kissed a girl?" <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So yeah, it was. Uh, they, they were one of the the earlier ones. So, 
I mean, there's so much to talk about, but I just wanted to ask a few things. And, and uh, I should also add that a lot of the things you're talking about that are related to the entertainment world, which we can learn so much from, you also include examples of businesses that are doing these things uh, particularly well. And that was sort of surprising for me. I didn't realize some of the some of the success some of these businesses were having using some of those same approaches. But as I mentioned, I, I came from an advertising background, and I just have to ask this one question from page 42, where if you could explain this, you see, a couple decades ago, people objected mainly to advertising that interrupted their television viewing. Now it's not only interruptive, but transactional advertising that people find objectionable. Yeah, that's, I think, kind of a fascinating development. And I mean, it's no secret that people are more and more turned off by advertising and younger people in particular. And, you know, that's why, you know, first we had things like TiVo and so forth that allowed you to skip commercials on TV. And, you know, network executives and advertising executives, uh, you know, railed against this even as they used it themselves. (laughs) (laughs) Guilty, guilty, yeah. Yeah. Guilty. And, uh, And so... You know, now it's, of course, uh, um, you know, online, you can filter out ads from, you know, websites, all kinds of things. And uh, it used to be not too long ago that people were wondering, well, how is any, you know, media business going to support itself? And you know, this was, of course, coming off the uh, the near demise of the music business, uh, mm-hmm. which was a completely self-inflicted wound, in uh, in, in in my estimation. But um, uh, you know, how we were going to support ourselves? Well, it turns out that people will actually pay for you know television, for newspapers online, for you know news in various formats online, and. Uh, and, and and pay for uh, music, pay for satellite and pay radio. For music. Yeah, absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely. You know, Sirius is uh, uh, Sirius, and uh, uh, Spotify, and all of these things are very big. And there's a sense that we are at a place where I shouldn't say at a place. Perhaps I should say getting to a place where yeah. media can sort of write themselves by which I mean R-I-G-H-T. They can set themselves right. They can charge for what they need to charge for. They can put up a paywall as it applies to journalism. Although I think more successfully a, a pay fence, um, as I call it, mm-hmm. uh, something like the New York Times where uh, you know you can watch a certain number of, I mean, rather read a certain number of articles um, uh, per month. And after that, you have to, uh, to start paying for it. And there are other examples. I mean, The Atlantic is doing that now, uh, Wired Magazine, The New Yorker. So I think this is definitely a, a, a healthy step, a step in the right direction. And uh, it's, it shows that there's going to be a media business that exists uh, in a 
you know, sort of maybe maybe we might say quasi post advertising world, right? Not necessarily advertising supported like it was. Yeah, or not wholly advertising supported like it was. Right. And you know, if you look at the beginnings of advertising and the beginnings of journalism, they started in the eighteen uh, together in the eighteen thirties with the invention of the penny press, which was, you know, newspapers like the New York Sun that were, you know, because of technology because they suddenly had fast printing presses by comparison at least with what they had had that meant that you could print large quantities of a newspaper and if you sold them for a penny which was you know even then not much money if you sold them for a penny, then it wouldn't cover your cost, but you could get advertising to uh, to cover the rest of your cost. And mm-hmm. uh, the reason you could get advertising was if you had an audience, if you had a readership. And, uh, and the way to get a readership was to hire reporters to write articles that people wanted to read. And so it became this, uh, you know, this circle. Uh, you know, you had writers to write articles to gather an audience that would respond to the advertising uh, that was sold because you had the audience. And, uh, you know, it's been that way more or less ever since. Uh, you know, I don't think advertising is going away entirely, but I do think it has to change dramatically. And it is changing dramatically, especially among the, you know, I, I, what I consider to be the smarter brands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a shadow of its former self. And if uh, it was still the 800 pound grill in the room, this guy's agency would still be doing a lot of it. <laughs> We've moved on to, uh, you know, content creation and, 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 and other things. So let me ask you just about audience. And I there was a book on the show several years ago called Audience by Jeff Roars. And it was interesting, I thought, because it tried to introduce to companies the idea of, you know, you, you can't with much success, interrupt people anymore. You need to build your own audience. And your section on audience, I just wanted to read the first paragraph and ask you to elaborate on it, obviously at a high level. But you write, connecting with an audience is the point of any story. The question is how, and how do you know when you've done it? Those are great questions. Could you elaborate on that? Sure. Well, <laughs> you know, uh, some, somewhere... And in I'll come book- back in about 45 minutes and see how you're doing. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> uh, so, somewhere in the book, there's a, there's a story that I uh, was told and, uh, and, and then looked up. It's uh, sort, of, sort of great fun, t- t- as far as I was concerned. That uh, Richard Curtis, um, when he had a, a TV show, a hit TV show in, uh, on the BBC... And this was back in the early 80s, I believe, had, uh, you know, no way of knowing, like, whether it actually was a hit. Was anybody watching this thing? They, you know, Oh, it was they, called Black Adder? Yes, Black yes, Adder. The, I've got the book the, here. Right. I can see. Yeah, and I wasn't familiar with that. But a lot of yeah. the listeners in the UK probably are. Yeah, right, for sure. So, he used to actually you know, wander around Shepherd's Bush, which is a neighborhood where the BBC television studios are, and look in people's basement windows to see uh, if they were watching TV. That that was like the kind of feedback that he got. Uh, pretty primitive, right? And 
you know, if you think about it, the conventional, you know, Nielsen ratings that we used to have uh, weren't a whole lot better. Uh, and but, you said they're becoming more obsolete, I guess, <laughs> for reasons you're about to explain. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that, well, first off, the revolution in television, um, uh, you know, distribution that we've seen just in the last uh, year and a half, partly in response to the pandemic, but it was certainly uh, happening anyway. The fact that everybody is streaming now, yeah. you know, networks are, are, you know, moving to streaming, uh, you know, Disney is streaming um, and, uh, uh, you know, everybody is trying to, comp- to compete with Netflix. And uh, and to a slightly lesser extent, Amazon Prime. Uh, you know, this is um, it's it's really all about: Are you connecting with uh, with your audience? Are you connecting with a, an audience? And and you know, and why or why not? And That's Richard always- Curtis didn't know this, so he would walk around looking into the apartments of at the street level to see if people were watching his show. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> you know what? What uh, they didn't have much in the way of metrics, and what they did have have was, I gather, sort of closely guarded by the BBC executives themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah. So, you know, now we're getting uh, increasing. Uh, kinds of metrics, increasing numbers of metrics. Uh, I still wonder how many of them are as helpful as we think they are. And I think there's a uh, there's a real tendency to put uh, faith in anything that we can measure, um, and n- not to think too much about like how actually important that might be. <laughs> right. I mean, the classic example online is page views. Uh, yes. You know, every so many things are measured. Their success is measured by how many page views they get. And never mind that you know most of their page views probably most of every site's page views are like a couple of seconds. Um, it's the it's the amount of time that people spend engaged with your content for lack of a better word uh, that is what matters it's not you know whether somebody lands on your page and you know jumps off a a second or two later Mm -hmm. yeah it brings to mind the expression that not everything that can be measured matters Mm -hmm. and not everything that matters can be measured very well put yes so Let's go on, and I want to, this may harken back to your uh, last book, but I- explain what you mean when you write that we are living in the age of immersion. And I should add that you also say that, you know, the more immersed we become, the more persuasive we find the story, and you don't actually need digital technology to create an immersive experience. I just want to add that in for people who think, oh, well, we're not a movie uh, studio. Yeah, right. It's really... Looking at, uh, say, something like Sleep No More, which until the pandemic was uh, a huge theatrical hit in uh, Manhattan, it played nightly for, uh, well, ever since 2011, and uh, it was an immersive theater piece that uh, invited people to uh, come to this huge loft building in in the Chelsea neighborhood, uh, and... um, and sort of explore, and there was some some 
like semblance of a play going on around them uh, but you could there was no stage there was no proscenium arch there was none of this stuff uh, and uh, instead there was a, a endless uh, seeming series of rooms which you were able to wander around and you know you could uh, open the drawers you could pick up stuff you could you know read letters that were left out um, you know all kinds of things like this and you know and then sometimes you'd come across some actors who would be playing out a scene uh, and uh, and frankly the only way you could tell who was an actor and who was not was because the um, guests the paying guests were supposed to wear a mask uh, you know, sort of a, a, a large plastic mask, a little bit like those Venetian masks of the 18th century. And, uh, and this was sort of, for many people, the beginning of uh, immersive theater. And, uh, you know, there's nothing digital about the experience. There's certainly um, some digital technology in the background, um, but, uh, but there's nothing about the experience. Another example uh, called the Hopscotch Opera. Uh, if I can have a brief aside, um, several years ago, six years ago, I think it was, I started at Columbia at the Digital Storytelling Lab there. I started this awards program called um, the Digital Dozen. And the, uh, the, there was like the Breakthroughs in Storytelling Awards, and uh, we picked 12 different types of stories uh, um, every year uh, to highlight and to, um, to, to recognize. And... Uh, one of the things that we did was we uh, eliminated the idea of categories. We feel like digital erases categories. There's no reason we should try to sustain them. And we also feel like lots of people in you know advertising, say, can learn from uh, people in entertainment or people who are artists, and uh, you know, uh, and vice versa. And so we wanted to take advantage of that. One of the very first things that we did, uh, that, that we um, you know, celebrated, was a theater piece in L.A. called Hopscotch Opera. And it was an opera that, very L.A., took place in cars. And <laughs> you, you, would, you would show up at this parking lot near downtown and... For the next, um, you know, a couple of hours, you would be driven around uh, in the in the back of a limousine, and sometimes there would be musicians uh, sitting right in front of you playing, and sometimes there would be scenes that would take place on street corners, and sometimes there would be, uh, you know, sceners um, on top of, of buildings, um, and not on top of the same buildings, but, you know, like across the street from each other, and so forth. And it was a completely... Uh, you know, um, analog experience that was made possible by digital technology because you, without digital, you couldn't coordinate all this stuff. It would be impossible. And uh, so there's a lot of digital that takes place in the background. And, uh, you know, I think that's an important thing to remember. But I think another important thing to remember is that we're fundamentally analog creatures. And, you know, we love playing in this digital world that we're creating. And there's, uh, especially right now, a great deal of novelty about it. And uh, there's a certain amount of shiny object syndrome. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, so, um, so, you know, so, so that's, that's fine. Uh, but uh, what is 
always ultimately, I think, going to matter to us more than anything else is uh, is flesh and blood experiences. And if you know nothing has shown us, if if the pandemic has shown us nothing, it certainly uh, suggested that. Oh, definitely. And I, it's so it's so important. And I'm happy to get on Zoom to talk with a, a person. But in terms of trying to present to a group, or mm-hmm. heaven forbid, last year I did a stand-up comedy course, and it was all on Zoom. Absolute mm. torture. <laughs> <laughs> which is not the point of comedy. Right? Yeah, because I couldn't get anything, and it brought to mind Jerry Seinfeld's book, which someone later gave me for Christmas called Is This a Thing? Which is what the comedians will say like when they're practicing material. Their thing, is this even funny? So the, when I took that course, they would critique each joke and you know go mm-hmm. through it. It's very well done. But I always wanted to say, yeah, but is it even funny? <laughs> <laughs> Right. I'm missing all that. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, as it relates to immersion, I was just delighted to see that you mentioned the book, The Experience Economy by Pine and Gilmore several yes. times. I had uh, interviewed uh, Jim Gilmore about that uh, within the last year. And that's Jim Gilmore, the author, not the former governor of Virginia, uh, in case you, were, you know, folks were wondering about that. But that was a, such a great adjunct to what you were talking about, where as I recall, in about the second half of that book, it was very much about theater. In other words, operating yes. your business much more like a theatrical production. And one of the quotes that you have in there from their book is that 74% of Americans prioritize experiences over products or things. And one of the great lines from that book is when he said, what are you doing as a business that you could be charging for <laughs> that you're currently giving away for free? It's, it was it was wonderful to see that and, and to better understand how you can tell your story and make it more immersive for the uh, for your customers or for your for your audience. Let's get onto a couple of vocabulary uh, words, if you don't mind me saying that. You write that the most effective stories, movies and novels, but also much shorter tales, uh, sixty second television spots among them, generally follow a narrative arc. I was wondering if you explain to listeners what what this narrative arc is. It seems like a fairly broad term, but I'm not sure a lot of folks appreciate what it involves. Sure. Well, there are a number of different forms that a story can take, uh, obviously, but the narrative arc is is one of the, well, it's probably the most traditional, uh, and um, the reason for that is it's, uh, it's certainly one of the most effective. And it's basically just the idea of a beginning, a middle, and an end. And uh, the beginning is, uh, you know, you're, you're sort of um, uh, in a more or less uh, flat space, so to speak. Um, it's setting the scene. Um, and, of course, uh, especially now under the influence of video games, uh, the beginning is uh, is very truncated. And you move directly almost into uh, into the middle, which is... Uh, you know the, the 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 part where stuff happens, right? Uh, everything uh, starts to fall apart, or the conflict you mentioned. Mm-hmm. The conflict, exactly, yeah. uh, and the conflict builds and builds and builds and suspense along with it. And uh, you know there may be some ups and downs along the way. There usually are, but um, toward the end of the middle, so to speak, uh, you get to the climax. You get to you know the sort of climactic moment. Uh, uh, and then after that, things turn around, and um, uh, 
uh, and that's the end. That's the the, the third part uh, where there's usually some sort of resolution. And another thing that's happening now is a result of these, uh, you know, sort of um, immersive forms of storytelling uh, where you're invited to to come into the world uh, is that there may not be much of a resolution either. Uh, you know, there may be sort of a sense of a temporary re- uh, resolution, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. So, but this idea of the beginning, the middle, and the end, uh, you know, that's the... Um, um, that's the essence of the narrative arc. And uh, the phrase, of course, um, comes from, you know, if you drew it out, you would have a, uh, a, you know, a flat line at the start, rising, 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 come to the climax, and then um, sort of go back down. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, people have played with this idea from uh, for a very long time. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard, the uh, French New Wave filmmaker of the 50s and 60s, uh, was once asked um, at a um, uh, at Cannes at the film festival um, in a you know conversation, uh, sort of a discussion. Um, uh, but surely, uh, Monsieur Godard, you uh, believe in a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, to which Godard replied, yes, but not necessarily in that order. <laughs> right. And I think that may have been the part where you explained the nonlinear narrative, uh, talking about Pulp Fiction, the, right, the movie. Right. Yeah. So an, a narrative arc, now how does that differ from what you call a character arc? What, what do people need to know about that? Right. Well, a character arc is, is basically uh, you know, the transformation that a character goes through. And one of the really key things about um, stories is time. It's really important to understand the role of time um, because uh, what happens in a story, it, it, it unfolds over time. And, uh, and the point of the story is really to, uh, you know, to, as I say, to take the audience on a journey, uh, you know, uh, a journey also, of course, unfolds over time. And so, uh, you know, what we're really talking about here is, uh, is, is um, a change. Some change has to occur. Mm-hmm. Um, there has to be some sort of, uh, you know, conflict and um, at least to a certain extent, a resolution. And that's necessarily going to involve uh, some change in the in the character, or you know, the main character, you know, maybe other characters, uh, depending on what kind of story you have. But uh, but yeah, that's that's basically what we mean by a character arc. Okay, so another question I want to ask you about it came from the section on uh, detail, which I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that detail gives us something to hang on to, like a peg for the emotion that stories convey and that there's no end of psychological research that shows the numbing effect of abstraction. So if you could explain this, you write on page 125, ideas are abstractions. Stories are particular. Detail is what makes them so. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. That's something that's been, increasingly fascinating to me uh and um 
you know, we and and that's where the idea of uh, one place um, where the idea of data comes in. Uh, you know, obviously the book is primarily about stories, but it's about stories in a backdrop of a of a world that seems to be increasingly data driven, and. What I think about data is that uh, it can, uh, you know, properly understood and interpreted, it can lead us to some quite remarkable insights. Um, it is not going to change anyone's mind ever about anything. Um, there's been no end of research that uh, that demonstrates this. Um, the the uh, there are many examples, but uh, the one that I find most uh, sort of compelling and intriguing is what's called the identifiable victim effect. And what that means is that, you know, people, uh, uh, psychologists and so forth, have conducted multiple experiments that show that when uh, you're asking for a donation, say, for a, <laughs> yes. uh, you know. This for, is great. For, I love this section of the book. Fascinating. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, when you're asking for, for charitable donations, uh, if you have a single person, uh, a single victim that you identify by name and, and by circumstance and so forth, um, you're going to get much more money than if you have uh, a, a statistic. Um, you know, like one girl, one little girl who's starving to death is going to get much more money than millions of people who are starving to death. Which is an um, abstraction. Which is an abstraction, exactly. Mm -hmm. We're just not, we're just not, you know, uh, equipped to process this kind of information, it turns mm -hmm. out. And what it really comes down to is, uh, is emotion. You know, we form, we're capable of forming, you know, even in just a momentary, uh, you know, say television um, uh, spot, um, we're capable, or, or, you know, a little magazine ad or whatever with a picture, uh, picture is very important. Um, we're capable of forming a, a sort of emotional bond um, with someone. Um, they found, uh, certain researchers found that even if you added two people, if you added another person and you had two people who were very needy, the amount of money that would be donated went down. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, just the idea that you would... Um, have instead of this um, an abstract number of people, right? Um, you know, this is this is where uh, the difference between reason and emotion comes in. And what Jerome Bruner was really talking about, you know, back in the eighties when he, uh, you know, to my mind, sort of set us all on this quest of understanding stories. What he was really talking about was uh, the the idea that. Uh, um, there are two modes of thought. Uh, there is logic and reasoning on one hand, and there is um, uh, stories on the other hand. Uh, and they're fundamentally different from each other, um, but uh, they're both uh, important. They're, they're equally important. And, uh, and to understand stories and how they work is really to accept that we are 
fundamentally emotional creatures, which goes back to that quote that you read um, early on uh, in our conversation, uh, that we are emotional creatures and, uh, you know, even our, even our attachment to the idea of reason is, is more emotional than it is rational. Um, you know, this is kind of, to my mind, unfortunate, but um, if you don't take that into account, uh, you're not going to get very far, I don't think. It's so true, and companies make it very difficult for themselves. And when you talk about the logical side and the emotional side, that's not a balanced chemical equation. <laughs> it seems like it's 99% emotion <laughs> and right. maybe 1% uh, logic. And I've also heard the logical part of our brain is actually simply the PR department for what our <laughs> emotional side already wants to do. Right. And there was, who else was it? Antonio Damasio, I think, had said, we're not thinking animals that occasionally have feelings. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're feeling thing, we're feeling animals that occasionally think. <laughs> right, right. So, um, the other thing that uh, comes to mind, and I know, I, I, I'm sure there's folks thinking, yeah, well, I'm not Disney. Okay, well, let's say you, <laughs> you are a, you're selling a product or something, and or, or a service, professional service, whatever. All of you, I know, have these uh, sales sheets. You know, say, hey, hey, marketing, just spin me up a little sales sheet so I can talk about the product. If they could just, in the same amount of space, instead of talking just about the, what do they call it, uh, the, the feeds and speeds and the bits and what, yeah. whatever's in there, convey that same information but put it in the standpoint of a previous customer who was struggling with a mm -hmm. problem and then they stumbled upon this, and and there's the result. Now that's very rudimentary, but it's much more uh, interesting. And the person reading that will think, "Wow, that that kind of describes my situation. It it works so much better." And it's a, you know, it's a, it's the use of a, a story. So it's it's not like you have to be Netflix here. <laughs> you can just <laughs> tell it from the standpoint of someone who your customers would would relate to. That's I'll, I'll step down off my soapbox here my <laughs> and try and you know move on. I, I wanted to ask uh, just one more question about the book, and that's from uh, the very last chapter, which I got to be honest with you, Mr. Rose, it was a little bit worrisome, and that's why it reminded me of The Hype Machine by Sanana Rao, where it, it really made me want to continue to keep all this all these apps off my phone <laughs> and minimize my social media. And uh, I know uh, David Merriman Scott's been on the show a number of times, and I remember in one interview he was talking about what a sewer Facebook has become, and it's yeah. been mentioned in many other books, and certainly this one just reminded me of the of the strange power that they have. And I just wanted to quote, actually, it's from I think the last page of the book, and ask you to elaborate on a couple of a couple of terms you have here. You write, "Choose where your attention goes." Choose, as Jerome Bruner might have put it, how you construct reality. Choose not to be totally hosed. These are the mark of awareness in an attention economy. If there were only one thing to be learned about stories or devices or stories on devices, it would be this, that you need to be conscious and aware enough to respond to the signal and not the noise that you need to break out of the compulsion loops that surveillance capitalism has programmed for you, that you need to construct your own reality rather than buy into someone else's, and that to manage these things successfully, you need to be fully, deeply aware of the sea we are swimming in. Can you talk about these compulsion loops and, and what surveillance capitalism is? 
Sure. Well, surveillance capitalism is, uh, you know, the the term, I think, uh, originated with uh, Shoshana Zuboff, who published this book about two years ago called um, uh, The Era of Surveillance Capitalism, which I reviewed for the Wall Street Journal and which I found totally, totally fascinating. And compulsion loops are uh, you know, it, I, I think the idea comes from video games, actually. Uh, but, um, you know, obviously, if you're designing a video game, you want to keep people engaged, right? You want to keep them involved. And, uh, and, and one way to do it is through what's called a compulsion loop. And, of course, the loop is a very basic uh, concept in computer science anyway. Uh, but... A compulsion loop is 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 much more than that. Uh, often it has to do with the fact that we are uh, we we seem to we humans seem to be uh, fundamentally programmed uh, to respond to randomness, uh, to uh, in particular a random reward pattern. Uh, this has been shown time and again, uh, and it's not just humans. Actually, it's any sort of animal. Um, uh, it's what powers um, the whole slot machine industry, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because that's the, the the definition of a random reward. Sometimes, most of the time, you'll get nothing. Sometimes you'll get a little something. And once in a great while, you'll get a huge payout. Uh, and... Uh, you find the same kind of behavior in, you know, birds that are looking for food. Um, it's, um, you know, the the understanding within uh, sort of psychology and anthropology um, circles is that is that this is basically a um, uh, a sort of evolutionary mechanism to keep us, uh, you know, to, to, to keep us looking for food, to keep us <laughs> uh, hunting. You know, yeah. Yeah. Hunting. Exactly. Uh, and, um, but, uh, you know, obviously we're sort of uh, um, well past that now, but uh, the mechanism still holds and compulsion loops really play into that. And, you know, so a compulsion loop is, is just like something that you are, uh, you know, Putting something in there that you are, feel compelled to do, and uh, you know, social media is a perfect example of something that is constructed on a compulsion loop basis. Uh, you know, we've all been, uh, you know, there where we're you know constantly checking uh, Twitter or. Uh, you know, um, whatever, uh, to find out, uh, you know, if has anybody responded to my post, uh, you know, um, all of this sort of thing. And the, and the Wall Street, I mean, Facebook is, is probably the worst offender, although YouTube <laughs> is a close second, uh, in terms of the amount of misinformation and, and disinformation that they, uh, that they convey, and you know, lately in the last week or so, they have, uh, you know, both companies have, you know, tried to. Well, YouTube in particular, which of course is done by Google, um, has tried to kind of back off from that and say, well, we won't do any. Uh, you know, we, we won't allow people to publish misinformation about the coronavirus or about the vaccines. Uh, well, you know, great. Uh, a little late for that, but whatever. Um, and, um, uh, but, you know, basically, 
compulsion loop is is what we're doing when we're uh, you know, when we're checking our feeds, when we're, you know, doing these kinds of things that give us the, you know, the sort of momentary hit of, uh, you know, of, of dopamine um, for, uh, you know, what, for whatever it is that we're, you know, uh, have put out there or that we're trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you, you write... Um Compulsion loops prey on the brain's reward system, which releases a dopamine hit in anticipation, not on delivery, of a pleasurable experience. If the experience doesn't come, you're left wanting it all the more. Such loops are hard to escape, particularly for anyone predisposed to addiction. And it brought to mind another book that was on the show a while back called Indistractable by Nir Eyal about why we become distracted. But his earlier book was called Hooked, which explained that Mm -hmm. short passage he wrote it uh, several years ago, and it's on every Silicon Valley executive's bookshelf. Uh, but it explains how to build an addictive product. And um, he said that, don't worry, the social media companies don't need to read this book. They already know what they're doing. <laughs> and I, he said that was part of the reason he wrote Indistractable, because he felt so bad about explaining exactly or deconstructing how uh, how to leverage these uh, these compulsion loops. I also have to add one thing that, Again, I just found so amusing. You were saying, um, you know, the this happens every six months where the social media companies, it'll be revealed that they were doing something awful. And they'll say, oh, oh, gosh, sorry. Yeah, we're going to stop that. You know, like the latest one, I think, was Instagram for children or something. And right. you, you mentioned uh, Charlie Wurzel from the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And there's this acronym, which is not, not an acronym, an abbreviation, WKWHMWTD. <laughs> And it stands for, we know we have much to do. (laughs) We know we have much to do. And every time I see an executive from Facebook or YouTube or Google, those people getting yelled at by the senators or the congressmen in Washington, uh, I can, from now on, when I see a clip of that, I'm going to be thinking of you because they're basically sitting there for an hour saying some variation of, Yes, Senator, we know we have much to do. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, and, and you know, my, my uh, modest contribution to this idea, I think, is, is uh, you know, this abbreviation, uh, WKWHMWTD, uh, which stands for um, we, we know we have more work to do, right? Mm-hmm. So, as you said. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, we know we have more work to do. Yes. Right. Sorry, it's a lot and, of words there. Right. A lot of words and a lot of letters and. and but that's, that, that nails it. That's what they sit there yeah, saying on right. every one of these sessions. Yeah, exactly. Or, or anything they talk to the press when it's been revealed that they were, they had a data breach or they were, uh, anyway. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, my my feeling was that we ought to, like, not only have an abbreviation, we ought to have a way to pronounce the abbreviation. So, so I'm proposing that we call it Weka Huam uh, <laughs> That's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> right. So, so, so that way, you know, like back in the 80s and, and 90s, there was this idea of WYSIWYG, which was yes. what, what you see is what you get, uh-huh. right? And, and, and that was what Apple provided with the Macintosh. And what uh, eventually um, uh, uh, Microsoft did with um, 
with windows you know so so you what you saw on screen was what you would get if you printed it out um so weka huamotiri is the same you know sort of sort of thing where uh you know we don't we they won't even have to say we know we have more work to do they can just sit there and say weka huamotiri and it'll all be fine and you're just trying to help them frank you're here to help absolutely yeah absolutely, yes. and weka huamotiri that is not a children's uh summer camp uh in the in the uh, in New England somewhere. So, Frank, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Hmm, I'll have to think about that. Um, <laughs> well, it's not a fair question, to be sure. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, I think it would be really that that stories are the key to persuasion. You know, we're not going to persuade anybody with facts. Uh, you know, or let's let me put it this way: We're not going to persuade many people with facts. If the coronavirus has shown us nothing else, it's shown us that. Uh, you know, <laughs> yes, there yes. seems to be the sort of um, uh, among a sizable uh, percentage of the population, there seems to be this uh, sort of desire to believe in magic. You know, so we'll kind of ignore what science says mm-hmm. and. Uh, and and uh, go with something else entirely, you know, and never mind that it doesn't work. Um, so, uh, you know, and and what's behind this is really the persuasiveness of stories. We see all kinds of stories online. We've seen them on YouTube. We've seen them on Facebook. Uh, you know, Twitter, everywhere. Uh, that uh, uh, they might not make a lot of sense, but to uh, you know, at least a certain. A rather large percentage of the population, um, they are persuasive. And you're not going to counter that with uh, a lot of facts and figures uh, and abstractions. You know, the only way to counter that is with uh, stories with you know accounts of what what can happen, what healthcare workers are facing, what uh, patients are facing, what their families are facing, mm-hmm. and frankly, I, you know, I think at this point it's gotten so entrenched that it's going to be very, very, very hard to counter it in any form, uh, in any way, I should say. But it certainly demonstrates that facts and figures are have extremely limited usefulness. Amen. And if anyone doesn't believe the power of stories versus facts and figures, their mind would be changed by this book. And even mine, it was reinforced. You talk about science, you talk about entertainment, business, all these organizations where, in fact, understanding the stories helps to understand more of what's going on in the world instead of yearning for just the facts and and just the figures because I don't I I even see this in the political world and I try to avoid that on this show because I don't know much about it but I you hear arguments going on uh, using facts and figures and it it it, it doesn't seem to work as well as uh, some of the the arcs that we talked about the uh, the stories so that's a that's a great answer very true what is one thing a listener could do today just to get that boulder rolling down the hill to put in action one of the one of the many ideas we've talked about or that's that's in your book? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I would think, you know, just don't put all your trust in data. Uh, data is important. It's, uh, it can lead to tremendous insights, but it's not going to be persuasive to anybody. 
And this gets to what I call narrative thinking. Narrative thinking, you're no doubt familiar with design thinking, right? It's an idea that's been around for 40, 50 years and has become increasingly uh, popular in uh, uh, you know, in the corporate world. Um, and in the book, mm-hmm. Frank explains uh, why it's uh, on the rise. Right. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, it's sort of um, viewed as a proxy for encouraging creativity, and it's really taking the tools that, that um, designers have used for a long time, the, you know, the mindset, the steps that they go through, and so forth, and giving those tools to people who are not designers, um, for example, corporate executives. And what I'm talking about with narrative thinking is somewhat analogous to that. It's giving the tools of storytellers to people who don't think of themselves as professional storytellers, but in fact, um, they are or they should be. Uh, and I think um, advertisers and marketers, uh, you know, chief among them. So to understand how stories work, to understand why stories work the way they do. Uh, You know, these are, I think, really critical skills. And that's what narrative thinking is all about. And that's what I'm trying to get across in this book. Well, let me just add to that. That's a great answer. And you write at one point, you need to look away from the numbers and engage with actual humans, (laughs) which is some of the best advice. And there have been so many books on the show over the years that talk about how just that one thing keeps companies from being successful. Step away from the numbers, not completely, but engage with actual (laughs) humans. And the other one, one of my favorite quotes in the book was, data and people are not the same. And while data can tell you a lot, it's people you need to connect with and not in a superficial focus group kind of way. Such such great advice. Well, Frank, looking back, what books have most inspired your working career? Uh, you know, it's um, it's it's funny. I mean, I was uh, I spent most of my career as a journalist, as you know. Um, uh, you know, graduated from journalism school, started writing for magazines, uh, wrote uh, several books along the way that were essentially narrative nonfiction. Um, looking in very different subjects, uh, including uh, West of Eden, which was the one about Apple and Steve Jobs and what happened with him and John Scully. But, uh, you know, with with the publication of my last book, um, The Art of Immersion, which followed 10 years of working at Wired Magazine uh, as a writer focusing on uh, what was happening at the intersection of media and technology, you know, I stepped into, when that book came out, I stepped into kind of a whole different world. And, you know, I find that books that, that have been uh, helpful to me and really important to me in, in understanding how this stuff works are there's a book by Brian Boyd called On the Origin of Stories. Brian Boyd is well known in literary circles as the as the biographer of, of Nabokov. Um, but, uh, and, and he teaches at the um, University of Auckland in New Zealand, but with, uh, with this book, On the Origin of Stories, he, he took basically a, a Darwinist perspective on storytelling. Like, why do we tell stories? And in particular, why do we tell stories that we know are not true, uh, i.e. fiction? 
And, and then why do we fall for them? <laughs> why, do, why do we fall for them, indeed? And he considers it, and, and he shows why, to be essentially adaptive behavior. Mm. You know, stories are a way in which we learn how to behave. Uh, you know, we learn by example. Uh, we're not told. Nobody's giving us instructions. We're we're reading or watching what happens, um, what people do, and what the result is. And that's what stories are all about. Uh, mm. And it starts in earliest childhood. You know, the idea that, I mean, anybody who's had a kid is very familiar with the concept of, uh, you know, tell me the story, read me the story, read me the same story again and again and again and again. Yeah. Uh, and this sort of immersion is, uh, you know, Boyd um, argues, really critical to, uh, you know, to our development um, as as people. Um, so that's a a. a Terrific book that I highly recommend. Uh, we discussed earlier the experienced economy by Joseph Pine and James Gilmore. Uh, you know what you were saying earlier uh, about um, w well, you know we we don't have to be Disney. No, we don't quite have to be Disney, but sort of. You know, we certainly need to think of ourselves in that way. Right, in uh, thought. There's a lot yeah. that we can. I, yeah. I'm saying that almost to the people that are sitting there. Maybe they're not listening to this, but they work with some of the people listening, and they're sitting there in the conference room with their fleshy arms crossed, and they're saying, we're not Disney. There was a book recently where we talked about this, where uh -huh. they, uh, they, they were inspired by certain aspects of Disney's thinking, for mm -hmm. instance. And this was a software company. And somebody said, we're not Disney. We don't have costume characters. No, that's not the point. <laughs> there's yeah, there's yeah, still right. so much to be borrowed from them, even if you're yeah. selling a, a widget. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, there, there, there certainly is, and, um, uh, and 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 that's what I really meant to say. I think the the point of your story is they're saying we're not Disney, but they they certainly have to be, uh, you know, to a certain extent. They are. They should be Disney. Right, and in the book, several times you talk about you know any company can be a media company now. Yeah, right, exactly. Um, you know, you don't have to rely on paid media, on, which is... Say, right, all those gatekeepers you talk about. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. And, uh, you know, so if you can, uh, as a company, as an organization, it doesn't matter of what kind of organization, really, if you can, you know, create some kind of publication, whether it's... Uh, uh, you know, a newsletter, a podcast, uh, you know, stuff on your website, whatever, that, uh, you know, you can reach people directly. And that's, you know, really much more effective. I was, you know, one example of this I was quite impressed by. Uh, there's, uh, of course, Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York, which is uh, one of the world's top cancer hospitals. Um, it's known as a place where, uh, you know, uh, where cures can actually happen, cures that were not, uh, you know, that other places might not be able to affect. But it's also known as a place that's very impersonal, and you can see why. You know, right? If you're if you're working there, um, the tendency would be to um, shield yourself uh, from the from the you know from your patients. Um, from the patients you're working with uh, because there's a 
great deal of emotion going on and you want to try to avoid that because you could get entirely burned out. So anyway, Sun Katerina a few years ago started doing this thing called Patient Stories and um, they're on the website and uh, some of them turn up in uh, advertisements in magazines and, uh, and on, in videos on YouTube. I first came across it in an ad in the New York Times magazine. I was fascinated and I, I, I went in and, uh, you know, sort of looked at what was on the site. And, you know, at this point, there are dozens and dozens of them. And there's, you know, patients who have triumphed against all sorts of, you know, different cancers. Um, and it's a, uh, you know, to, to me, that was just a, uh, you know, perfect example of what you can do and how you can directly speak to your uh, audience and how you can use that to convey what you um, want to convey without actually coming out and saying it. And I think, you know, I haven't spoken to them, so I, I, I can't say uh, definitively, but my understanding of what they want to do with these patient stories is um, to reinforce the idea that they can cure cancers that nobody else can, uh, and to convey the idea that it's a warm, fuzzy human place. Uh, and, uh, you know... And might even be focused on their patients. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. So, yeah, so I think that's um, an important thing. It is, and that was a great example in the book where you talked about that. And, of course, I used to live two blocks from there. Uh, mm. We used to live at 71st in, uh, in York, and so very familiar with it. It's one of the greatest cancer hospitals in the world, one of the greatest uh, reputations. Let me ask which one other quick question. I'm glad I bought extra audio tape at Costco today. No, I'm kidding. I appreciate all the time you're spending with me. But you've written so much uh, nonfiction. Were you inspired in your career by your fellow Washington and Lee alum, Tom Wolf? Yeah, that's funny. You should uh, you should mention that. Um, you know, when you said what books have inspired your your work, um, certainly my early work, the Electric Kool Aid Acid Test, was a was a huge influence. Uh-huh. Uh You know, that's such a such a crazy story. You know, that seemed so out of control, yet you know was of course uh, very much in control. Uh, is um, uh, you know, and a wonderful story about Ken Kesey and uh, you know the, these these people. And this idea, by the way, this idea of control is something I find totally fascinating, and I think is important in terms of any kind of storytelling, because you have to maintain a tension between. Uh, you know, out of control and in control. And, you know, that tension is one of the things that's going to make your stories interesting. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Did, you know, he passed away in 2018, I think. Something like that, yes. Did, did yes. you ever he meet was, him? Uh, no, I never did. I never did. Uh, you know, he was a trustee at WNL for for many, many years. Uh, and... Um, Lived on the Upper East Side, um, was sort of instantly recognizable by his suits. Yeah, I remember um, seeing him walk around. Yeah, yeah. So, but unfortunately, no, never met him. Interesting, interesting. Well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or have heard about, or that you're looking forward to to reading or seeing come out? Yeah, there's a there's definitely a couple. I mean, I, there's this new book by Steven Pinker called Rationality, which is. Um, 
definitely something I'll be checking out. Uh, and then <clears throat> there's, uh, you know, there's a couple of, of novels that I think are, uh, that sound extremely, extremely interesting to me. Um, I've started Ca Clara and the Sun, the new book by Kazuo Ishiguro, which is about a, um, uh, um, a an artificial friend um, which is to say a robot um, who is hired to or bought to be um, you know a friend to a little girl uh, and sort of help her um, grow up and uh, and Ishiguro is I, I think just one of the most brilliant novelists around um, then there's um, the new book by Anthony Doerr um, Cloud Cuckoo Land which I have not started um, very eager to I just got it um, but uh, have not cracked it open yet um, but um, you know this is this is uh, I mean Doerr is a fascinating writer and you know his last novel all the light we cannot see which i think came out in like 2014 or something it's a great example of this sort of puzzle box fiction that we're you know used to seeing increasingly in movies and television shows like inception you know the christopher nolan movie uh -huh. and of course the heights and the depths of humanity of what we're capable of really comes through in this uh in this novel all the light we cannot see and that sort of leads me to another point which is you know there are so many people who say oh, I don't have time to read fiction or, you know, fiction isn't relevant to me. I only want to read books that I can get some information from. Well, if you don't think you can get information that's important from fiction, you're reading, you're looking at, you're thinking about the wrong kind of fiction because, uh, frankly, uh, the insights that you can get from a really first-rate novelist like Anthony Doerr or you know, Ishiguro or David Mitchell, who wrote Cloud Atlas uh, some years ago. Um, you know, this is something you can't get elsewhere. And it's another example of storytelling and the power of storytelling, you know, because you uh, are, you know, in a really great novel, you are shown uh, the important things. You're not told, um, you know, uh, what's important uh, sort of comes out in the telling of the story. That's great advice. It's so true. And just for the listener, if you're only reading marketing and sales books, you're doing it wrong. I'll, I'll take care of that, okay? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, fiction is so good uh, for your brain. I remember my my daughter in, in high school, they all had to give a speech, and she gave this uh, very interesting speech. Imagine how much you can learn from your kids. It was a speech about the importance of reading fiction, and how it helps your your brain. So, very uh, very true, uh, very interesting. And uh, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable. All the books that have been mentioned, we're going to link to your website, uh, your LinkedIn profile, and your Twitter handle, and and all the things that can possibly be linked. And I'd like to ask the listener if you would please reach out to Frank in some way. And thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. It's been a real honor to interview him, and I appreciate how much time he's he's spent with us. And it'll really, 
uh, make his day. He's written a lot of books. This probably isn't his last one. And if he hears from enough of you, he might even come back on the podcast <laughs> for the next book. So, And also, for the listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you subscribe to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on the show notes link. The book is The Sea We Swim In, How Stories Work in a Data-Driven World. The author is Frank Rose. Frank, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you, Douglas. Totally enjoyed it. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. If you are one of the hundreds of listeners who have left an iTunes review, let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast bookmarks and laptop stickers. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world and I'll drop it in the mail. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast and I read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message indicating you're a listener so I won't mistake you for a spammer and ignore you. And I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. And remember the words of the entrepreneur and author Jim Rohn who said, formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. 